Here's what the Bible says. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where maybe, maybe for example, you go away for the weekend on a trip, or maybe you've gone for a week on vacation, and then you come back and a friend says to you, well, what'd you do? What'd you do this weekend? And, and you had a long weekend or a long trip uh, you know, out of town or in some other country or whatever it might be. And you say, Man, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, where do I start? How do I summarize in a, a couple of minutes? Because obviously my buddy here does not want me to take three hours to explain this weekend. He wants this weekend in about 30 seconds. Where do I start? Obviously, I'm not going to be able to to say everything that happened, so I better be uh, somewhat selective on, on what I'm going to say. So here it is. What did we do this weekend? Well, we got back. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds like a good weekend. Good for you. So what, that's, that's an interesting thing to think about for Luke, the passage we read from this morning, and we're going to look at the last moments of the life of Christ and his resurrection through the eyes of Luke. And it's interesting to think when you go to Luke and you say, tell me what happened with this whole death, burial, and resurrection thing of Jesus. You know, he includes a lot of information, but you know what's funny is he actually doesn't include a lot of other things. One of the things that Luke doesn't include is really any description of physical torture. There's no crown of thorns in Luke. There's no spitting upon Jesus in Luke. There's no punching Jesus who hit you, Jesus, in Luke. There's no flogging of Jesus in Luke. If you read just Luke, you might think Jesus skipped to the cross because there's no description of his of mistreatment and torture at any length. And then so you might say, well, maybe Luke is squeamish. Maybe Luke doesn't like violence. Well, then you read his other book, the book of Acts. No, he likes violence. People get stoned. People get stoned and die and then come back to life. People get shipwrecked. People get bit by snakes while other people sit and watch to see if they will swell up and die. No, it's in there, Acts 28. Go find it. Now you've got something to do during the sermon. It happens. So it's not because he's squimish. It's because he doesn't think it's the biggest part of the deal. 
Oftentimes we think of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and we think the biggest deal is his physical mistreatment. Luke doesn't think that way. There's something more going on. What does Luke talk a lot about is darkness and light. This is really an account of darkness and light breaking in. Luke Chapter 22, beginning in verse 47, Jesus and his disciples have already had the Last Supper. They've made their way out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus has already had a time of prayer, and his disciples have taken a nap. And now it is the middle of the night, and it is dark. And who are all the people that we're going to be introduced to by Luke in this account in the darkness on the Mount of Olives. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see the disciples. We're going to see religious and political leaders. We're going to meet again Judas, no longer the disciple, the betrayer. We are going to be introduced to the servant of the high priest and his famous ear. A rooster will be involved. While Jesus was there talking to his disciples in the middle of the night, in the darkness, suddenly... Judas arrived, and he was leading a large crowd. If you were in a park in the middle of the night, nobody around, and all of a sudden a large crowd shows up, you would find that very unusual. Judas draws up to Jesus and kisses him. And Jesus' response to Judas is, really, you're going to betray me with a kiss? I'm all right. All of those gathered around him, his disciples, and especially Peter, the ornery one. Lord, should we strike with the sword? He hadn't even asked the question fully when his sword was out and he was taking a fair swipe at the servant of the high priest. And Peter, as a swordsman, is a really good fisherman. He got his ear. That is not a successful beheading. That is a successful ear offing. Jesus says, no, knock it off. Put your swords away. That's what we're doing here. And he heals the guy's ear. No more of this, Jesus says. It's not what we're doing. You've missed the point. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the religious leaders and the scribes and the, and the temple authorities and the temple guards and the Roman centurions and all the other roughnecks that were brought out here. He said, listen, I have been in the temple every day this week. I have showed up to the temple every day this week and been teaching. Why didn't you arrest me then? What am I, a robber? And we all know the answer to that. You arrest the guilty in public. You arrest the innocent when nobody's looking. Here's what he says in verse 53. This, though, is your hour and the power of darkness. And they grabbed him, took him away. Peter followed at a distance. They took him to the house of the high priest, took him upstairs for a question and answer session. Peter stayed down in the courtyard and somebody lit a fire. It was cold out and that's what you do. And so they're sitting around the fire and you could see Peter sitting there with the orange glow of the flames flickering on his face. And a servant girl on the other side of the fire looks at him and says, man, I think you're one of those guys. He says, woman, I'm not that guy. That's not me. A little later, someone else looked at him and said, no, you're one of them. No, no, I I got you. I got you, Peg. You're one of those guys. He says, listen, man, I'm not one of those guys. An hour goes by, and Peter's imagining, okay, good, everything's fine. It's moved along. And finally, another person said to him insistently, certainly you're one of those. No, certainly you are. There's no question about it. You're a Galilean. 
Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And a rooster crowed. What does the scripture say in verse 61? The Lord, up in the high priest's house, would have been a little opening in the window up there. The Lord turned and looked and locked eyes on Peter. A rooster crows. Peter has betrayed his Lord now three times, and he didn't betray him in secret. He betrayed him in front of him. Scripture is quite clear. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. What's Luke including that he thinks is so important? This is the hour of darkness. And it is pitch black. Hope here is lost in the terror of the night. One author observes this. Desperation can make a person do surprising things. And in the account of this night in Jesus' life, desperation has made all of his followers do surprising things. Peter has, on the one hand, tried to behead a guy poorly. On the other hand, he has denied Christ three times successfully. All of his disciples has fled. Mark notably fled naked because somebody grabbed his robe. And he would rather flee naked than be captured along with his Savior. Desperation can make a person do surprising things. So everybody in this account of Jesus' dark night is doing surprising things except, except Jesus. He's doing precisely what he intended to do all along. Even in the darkness, Jesus says to them, with ominous hope, this is your hour, the power of darkness. How is that ominous hope? It's ominous because he's saying this. Okay, darkness wins right now. Darkness, you get this hour. But how is it hopeful? You got an hour. Better get busy. Because it's almost over. But in the same breath, he's saying, but darkness, darkness is going to get it right now. Darkness gets its way right now, but this hour won't last. Darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in a dark cave. Maybe you've been over to the Oregon Caves. Ranger will take you down to the depths of the caves. And then at some point, usually in that journey, the, everybody will turn their flashlights off and, and they'll kill the lights down there in the cave because it's one of the only places where you can experience what it feels like to have absolutely no light. And you can almost feel it. Maybe you get the same sense if you go down to some of the deep portions of the lava tubes over in Klamath Falls. So you can get down to the darkness, turn all the lights off, and, and see what, what darkness feels like, the weight of it, and the questioning, and the way your mind starts to fill in the gaps. Or maybe you can imagine some of these miners we've read about in the news that get trapped in the belly of the earth for days or, or weeks at a time. Could you imagine being a miner and realizing there's no way out, and you notice that the lights are just starting to get dim, and a little more dim, and a little more dim. What would you do in that moment as the light was going out? as you realize you're about to spend a significant period of time in the dark. Well, you would do what Peter did, and Mark did, and all of the other disciples did. You would be frantically trying to prepare yourself for the night. So if you're in that cave and the lights are dimming, you're scurrying around, maybe trying to find a place where you can put your back against the cave wall so you don't have to wonder what's behind you. Maybe you're looking for a place where you won't be sitting in the water. Maybe you're looking for a place where nobody could get to you. And as the light dims, everybody around you is scurrying around, trying to figure out how can I get to a place 
in our desperation where we can feel safe. So in that darkness, what's Jesus doing? He's just standing there. Because he never stopped being in charge. And then the lights go out, and the terror of darkness sets in. And desperate people do surprising things. As the light dims, everyone is desperately preparing for the night, and Jesus stands in the middle of it. Sad, certainly, but assured of this. The hour is short. Let's look down at Luke 23. If you want to turn there, you can. Again, I'm not going to read it. just going to summarize it. Luke 23, verse 13. I don't know if you like to watch scary movies. I don't, but then I do. It's like, no, I don't want to watch it, but it's like, oh, let's watch it. Now, if you're a filmmaker and you're going to make a movie scary, maybe you're going to have a real bad guy, or you're going to have a monster that's really scary in the movie, you have a couple of options for trying to make that scary. Number one, you can show us the bad guy or show us the monster. If you're in your movie and you're going to make a scary movie that's intended to kind of get us a little frightened, you'd better make a real scary monster. Because if I'm going to see the thing, the, the thing had better be real scary. But another way to make a scary movie with a scary bad guy or a scary monster is to, to never show it. Have it happen in the darkness. And all you hear is the commotion because good filmmakers know this, that what our imaginations can do is way scarier than anything they could figure out to put on that screen. So now what's happening is we're in the pitch black of this occasion. The lights have gone out, and everybody's wondering what could possibly happen in this darkness where Jesus has been taken captive by the authorities of the day. And the answer is this. What happens is worse than anyone could have expected. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers. Pilate's already questioned Jesus as well as Herod. And and Pilate says this to the chief priests and the rulers. Listen, there's nothing that this guy has done that deserves death. Not only that, I don't think he's done any of the things that you said he did. I'm going to punish him for what we don't know. I'm going to punish him and release him. And the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees and all these, they lost their minds. No, no, no. Give us Barabbas, the insurrectionist and the murderer. We want that guy set free. You kill Jesus. And Pilate said, but Barabbas is an actual murderer and Jesus has done nothing. No, I got to do the right thing here. No, Pilate wouldn't have said that. Um, I got to do a thing. I'm going to say, Jesus, I'm going to punish him and set him free. And they lose their minds. And now all of a sudden, Pilate understands the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome is at risk. We could have a riot on our hand. And a riot in Rome means somebody loses their job. And if you lose your job in Rome, well, you're dead. And Pilate knew that. Okay, well, okay, simmer down. I'll give you a Barabbas. You can have Jesus. Do whatever you want to him. He turned Jesus over to the religious leaders to do as they saw fit. Verse 26 of Luke 23. And they led him away. They grabbed Simon of Cyrene, made him carry Jesus' cross. And they walked up and following Jesus was this great multitude of people, women and men and others, mourning and lamenting and crying and wailing. And Jesus on his walk uh, to be crucified, tells him, listen, listen, don't cry for me. Cry for Jerusalem and the judgment that will come on this city. You don't need to cry for me. Cry for the suffering that is to come. 
Two other criminals were led away with him, also to be crucified with him. And they came to the place that is called the skull. This is verse 33. And listen to these four words in the English. There they crucified him. Four words. He's unbelievably brief. What's going on in the pitch black of night in this moment? All of his followers following him and mourning. But maybe, maybe just somewhere in the bottom recesses of their heart, there's some hope. Okay, now he's going to get free. Okay, now he's going to call down angels. Okay, now the armies of heaven are going to come and destroy Rome. Okay, now... And then closer and closer, and finally they get to Golgotha, the mountain of the skull, and the cross is laid down, and he's laid down on it, and they're thinking, maybe now is the time. Maybe now's the time. It's on like Donkey Kong. You're all dead, right? Until they hear that hammer hit that first nail. And, and all of a sudden, it dawns on everybody. He's actually going to die. Like, it's over. It, it's done. Everything we thought was going to happen is is over. And what are they going to do once he's dead with all the people who spent the last three and a half years with him? They're going to round us up. And a cross may seem merciful at that point. The nails go in, his cross is propped up, and the mocking begins. The religious leaders scoffing him. He saved others. Why does he save himself? They put up a sign with his title over his head. The title was accurate. It was intended to be a mockery. King of the Jews. This is Rome saying, look what we do with people who call themselves kings. Rome throws kings off like people throw away garbage. One of the criminals that was hanging next to him railed at him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save yourself. And and while you're at it, hook a brother up. Get us off these crosses, bro. And the other criminal, man, don't you fear God? Uh, We did stuff that puts people on crosses. He didn't do anything to put him on a cross. And this criminal turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied with the scariest, most hopeful verse in the Bible. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that great? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he hoping for? Maybe. Hey, Jesus, no, let's, uh, let's do this. And he says, yeah, see you there. I'll get there first. He's telling the guy he's about to die. We call that a bedside conversion, right? Get saved in the last hour, but he says, Jesus said, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to die up here, guy. But you did the right thing, making sure you're in the kingdom before that day comes. Verse 44 is about the sixth hour. There was darkness. Here we go again. Darkness. Over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. Verse 45. The sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just in case we have gotten this wrong before, let's make sure we're right on this. Nobody killed Jesus. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus gave up his life voluntarily for sinners. Having said this, he died. He didn't sort of die. He didn't swoon. He didn't have a bad day and pass out and just need a little water. He died all the way dead. Centurion was standing there. Centurion's pretty tough dudes. 
He saw what was going on. And he praised God. He said, this guy was innocent. Crowds that had assembled for the spectacle began walking away, beating their breasts, realizing they had just seen the most horrific death in all of history. All of his acquaintances and friends stood off at a distance, watching closely. The lights are out. The question is, in the darkness of that cave where we huddled against the wall, how terrifying will it be? And in the case of this darkness, it's worse than anyone could have imagined. There is an evil in that darkness, and in it, Jesus has died. He is buried, and all hope is lost, it seems. Poet John Greenleaf Whittier said this, and maybe it's a phrase you're familiar with. For all sad words of younger and pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. In the fear of that night, with Jesus no longer breathing on a Roman cross, the grief that is experienced is the light is gone. What might have been? We thought he was the Messiah. We thought the kingdom was coming. We thought we were going to be head honchos in the kingdom. We thought it was on, that it was happening, that finally the end was here, and it was a gigantic waste of time. And now we're in significant danger. What might have been? The sorrow and the fear. Something interesting happened in the middle of this, and we just sort of glossed over it, but it's worth paying attention to. Verse 45. The sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. So here in this moment, in the pitchest, blackest of darknesses, the light is gone, and all of a sudden somewhere in the temple there's this tearing of fabric. The curtain is is now open. And of course that forces the question, well, the the curtain which was designed to keep people out, it seems to be that now people can go in. The question is, who can go in? Jesus, in this moment, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I apologize for this because my mind is weird. I've tried getting a trade in, then nobody will take it. Maybe you've stayed in a hotel before and you decide you're going to sleep in a little bit, or maybe you've even had this happen at home, You're trying to sleep in, right? One day you get to sleep in a little bit. And then the sun comes up. And you realize when you went to bed that night, you didn't get the blackout curtains all the way closed. Now, in the hotel, they're designed to not close. I don't know if you know that. They're actually designed to not do that. The light comes up, and what happens is it's, it's just the sun shining through that little crevice, right? But there's something magical that happens in that crevice. As the light passes through it, it multiplies in its lumens. By the time it reaches you, it's three times the brightness of the surface of the sun, and it's hitting you right in the eyes. Like, and you move your head, and the sun follows your eyeball. You say, how is this possible? And if you're like me, there's no going back to sleep at this point, is there? No, you're done. You're awake. Great. I got to sleep in today, and now I've got this curtain. Curse you, old curtain. But that's what we have happening here. In this darkness, the curtain is torn. And all the, even though it's the darkest of nights, in fact, the darkness makes the, the glimmer of hope that much brighter. What's going on that the curtain is open? Is, is something else going on? The light is gone, but with Jesus having died now, the commotion is over. When we're sitting in that cave, that monster that was unseen in there, the damage is done, and now everything is quiet, and we're cowering in the corner. 
And we say, is it, is it over? Did we make it? Or, or if I move and make a noise, is that thing, that thing in the night going to, to find me? Is there still an unknown, unknown fear lurking out there? Or is there a chance that the light is dawning? In the darkness, the light creeps through that curtain. Look at Luke 24, 1. But on the first day of the week, when? At early dawn. So now all of a sudden Luke is leaving the darkness behind. The hour of darkness, time's up. It's dawn. The sun rises, and the sun rises. Suddenly there's the purest of lights and hope of something new. The women are going out to the tomb, and they have the spices they prepared They found the stone rolled away. That's weird. That's unusual. It shouldn't have been, especially since it was guarded by Roman centurions and sealed with a Roman seal. It shouldn't have been rolled away. It should have required permission to roll it away. They went into the tomb and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's weird. When you go into a tomb in which you had laid a body, generally later the body is still there. They go into the tomb and there is no body. You may be wondering, why are they doing this? What they would do when someone would die, they would be buried in a tomb, and they would decompose. You would add spices over time to keep it from getting kind of grody. And after the squishy bits had all rotted away, and all that was left is the bones, those bones would be collected and put in a much smaller box, and that box might even be displayed in the home. And a tomb could be used in a family many, many, many times. And that's why it had made note of the fact this tomb had never been used. So they're going in to do what you normally do. You get the dead body, you throw more smelly, good smelly stuff on it, and let it do its thing, and hopefully somebody is making a really nice bone box, because at some point we're going to want to remember Jesus. And they go in there and say, well, there's no body. It ought to be relatively decomposed by this point. And they're standing in a grave with no body, looking for a body, when suddenly there's two guys in dazzling clothes standing by them. How scared would you be? I mean, honest. I mean, first of all, you're in a tomb. That's creepy to begin with. Now you're in a tomb and you don't know where the body is? Okay, now it's getting weird. Now all of a sudden there's two guys standing there. I love their question. One of my favorite questions in all of the Bible. Verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They're making fun of him. I mean, they got to be. It's such a great question, isn't it? What do they assume about Jesus? He's not dead. If you're not dead, how long would you want to hang out in a tomb? Zero seconds. He's not dead. Why are you looking for him at tomb? If you want to look for Jesus, you need to look where there are alive people. Because he's not dead. Why are you looking for the living, that is Jesus, in a tomb where dead people are supposed to be? Then they point out the obvious. Don't you remember he told you all about this? He said he's going to die three days later, raised from the dead. This isn't new information. The women went back and reported this all to Peter and the disciples. And they all said, oh yeah, we remember what he said. We totally believe that's awesome. Yay, let's have church. No. They didn't believe it. In fact, it says it sounded to them like they were making idle tales. That's, no, let's just be honest. It's a little bit chauvinistic. Ladies, let the fellas handle this. We'll go check out the tomb. I'm certain we can find the body. Now, guys, how good are you at finding stuff in the house, right? 
What are the odds the guys are going to find this thing, right? No, they're zero. So Peter runs to the tomb, and he looks where the body was, and there's just linen cloths laying there by by themselves. And he went home marveling at what happened. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Could it possibly be that this means the hour of darkness is over? That Jesus' resurrection marks a new time where darkness is done and righteousness and light will reign. That's exactly what it means. C.S. Lewis says this about the resurrection. The resurrection is not just the climax of this story. Now, when C.S. Lewis starts talking about story, you want to pay attention. He's written one or two that a few people have read. And he is saying, listen, the resurrection is not the, the climax of a story. It is the only hope to be found in God. It is the good news. To quote C.S. Lewis, he says this, To preach Christianity meant to preach the resurrection. It is the central theme in every sermon in the book of Acts. The resurrection and its consequences is the gospel or good news that Christians bring. And that's exactly how chapter 24 of Luke starts. But... On the first day of the week, at early dawn, the power of darkness is over. Death could not hold him. The stone could not hold him in. Peter goes to the tomb. He didn't find a body. And the light has dawned. When you think about the resurrection, when you think about the resurrection account as we read of the scripture, as you've heard it may be told. Maybe the first time you heard about the resurrection was in Sunday school when you were a little kid and your teacher maybe had a flannel graph with a tomb and some angels that could be moved around. And maybe you got to be the volunteer to move the things. I don't know. Maybe that was you. But the stone could be rolled away. It could be moved over here. And you remember looking at that tomb, it's like, oh, that's so cool, flannel graph. That is high-tech stuff. Now we do all that with PowerPoint. Same stuff, same pictures. We photocopied them and put them on a PowerPoint. Well, here's what's interesting about all the occasions of people in this tomb, especially in Luke. All of the real drama in this tomb isn't happening outside. It's happening in the tomb. Jesus is raised in the tomb. The women go into the tomb and have their encounter with the angels. And Peter goes in and has his encounter with the empty tomb in the tomb. I might suggest we do better in moving this story into our hearts to stop thinking of ourselves outside that tomb and start recognizing we're in it. How does the Bible describe us in our rebellion and sin? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is death. To find life is to find Christ, but until we find Christ, our lives, whether or not we be living or already died, our lives are lives of being in the tomb. Remember back to that cave that we've been discussing. It was dark and there was a mysterious monster and we hid in the corner and then it got quiet. And then when that stone got rolled away, what happened? It was filled with light and now there's hope. We get to leave the tomb and experience life with Christ alone. When the stone is rolled away and when we find Christ, we don't encounter the tomb, we come out of it. Because in Christ, we find hope of resurrection. The story doesn't end at the end of Luke 24. In fact, it continues on. Let me suggest four ways the story and account of Christ's resurrection continue on. Number one, 
In our sin, we are all dead. That's what the Bible describes us as, dead in our sins. Without the resurrection of Christ, we will stay in our tomb. It requires the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to come out of our tomb of darkness and live a life in Christ of life. So I want to ask you this question. When all of your hopes have all crashed, will you seek Jesus who never disappoints? He said, well, what kind of hopes are you talking about? We, we got a number of hopes. Let me just list them, a couple of key ones briefly, uh, that none of us here struggle with, obviously, or think about, but certainly the first service is a big deal for them. Sometimes we put our hope in our money. Like, if I have enough money, I don't have to worry about stuff. Sometimes I put my hope in my job, because if I am awesome at my job, then I, therefore, am awesome. Put my hope in my family. If I have a good marriage and obedient children and... Uh, some halfway decent pictures on social media. There's my hope. I'll put my hope in a a politician. I was waiting for you to laugh at that one. (laughs) But you're like, now it's getting real up in here. Yeah, politicians never are disappointing. That's sarcasm. Uh, What happens when all of a sudden these hopes fall away? What happens all of a sudden when two things with our money? Number one, it can all go away real quick. Secondly, you can finally get how much you thought was the magic number to make everything okay and find out, oh, it's it's still not okay. Maybe I'll try and get some more. Or maybe with your family, you'll say, oh, okay, I've got a great family. But guess what? Family is funny because people are funny. And not everybody has it all dialed in. Spoiler alert, nobody does. Or what about that job? Guess what? Jobs come and go. Pandemics can make jobs go away. Politics can make jobs go away. Bosses who are just dopes can make jobs go away. Where's the hope then? Jesus' hope never fails. Even if his hope is speaking to a criminal saying, I'll see you later today. That's still hope that will never, ever Fail. There's two things that are going to happen to us at some point. Number one, all of our hopes are going to fail, and we're going to finally say, I need some Jesus. I need Jesus because I need hope. Something worse can happen than having all of your hopes fall away and seeking the Lord. You know what that is? Some people don't have them fall away, and you can make it to your last day with all your stuff working out really, really good. And you'll spend your last day with your hope still intact, and you will have missed the hope that will get you beyond your last day. And that's why Jesus says it is difficult for those with lots of blessing in their life to find Christ because we have found our hope elsewhere. Here's what Christ calls us to do in the, the deep darkness of the terror of that night. We need to admit we need God's forgiveness for our rebellion because it was our rebellion that brought the night. When we trust that what Jesus did on the cross and when he walked out of the tomb, that he gives us both forgiveness and life, we find hope even in the night. And that's why we discover what Luke is telling us about Jesus. He wants us to find hope that isn't just for today. He wants us to find hope that lasts forever. When we put our faith in Christ for forgiveness and life, then his life and story continues in through us as we bring hope to the world around us in Christ, to the glory of his kingdom.